You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Will Rimmers, frequent contributor to the Criterion Reflections podcast, joins me today to talk about The Lovers, stories of love and loss that are only available on the Criterion Channel. But first, Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast will be stopping by to discuss some tips and tricks for navigating the Criterion Channel's digital supplements. So stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel surfing, check out videos by Daisuke Beppu. In this series of warm and inviting videos, Daisuke Beppu shares his thoughts and reflections on the Criterion Collection, home media, and the films he loves. Find his videos on YouTube and search for Daisuke Beppu. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I am here once again with Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast, now in its third season, this time exploring the complete filmography of Krzysztof Kozlowski. He's also created a series of essential letterboxed lists for anyone just beginning their journey into the Criterion Collection called How Do I Criterion? Matt, as always, I really want to thank you for joining me again. Always a pleasure. Well, we're here today to talk about navigating the digital supplements on the Criterion channel. And, you know, I know that for me anyway, when I started getting into the Criterion collection, and actually what got me into DVDs and into purchasing physical media in general was the ability to get director's commentaries and special features and documentaries. And Criterion always had the best special features. That's always been what really, to me, distinguished them. And so it's such an exciting thing with the move to Filmstruck and now to the Criterion Channel to have them start to make those supplements available. This is the first time now, though, that we can search for supplements and can add those supplements to cues and can kind of break them apart from the films that they're associated with. I feel like in some ways that's really great, but in other ways it's kind of overwhelming, too. So how do you handle supplements? How do you navigate supplements? What's your tactic on some of these supplements and especially with a lot of the supplements that they're now generating specifically for the channel? Yeah, well, you covered a lot of ground there. The Criterion <laughs> invented supplements. They were the company that first created a director's commentary. I believe it was on King Kong. And if you listen to that commentary about the first 20 minutes of it, it's the person trying to describe what they're trying to do with commentary on a disc. <laughs> the other point that you made is that these supplements have gradually become more discoverable through the process of Criterion being available on a streaming service. Mm -hmm. On Hulu, they were practically impossible to find. The only way that you could find them was to scroll down below the Facebook comments on the individual movies page to see if there oh, wow. were any videos listed there. On so, Filmstruck, they were present, but you were not able to search for them at all. So you had to find them within the film's page. 
So there were supplements on the Hulu channel as well. I didn't realize that. They were so buried that I didn't even realize that they were there. And there were very rarely commentaries. I think there may actually have been no commentaries, but Mm -hmm. there were supplemental videos, interviews, things like that. Not on every title, the way that they cover just about everything that they have access to on the Criterion channel now, more than they had on Filmstruck even. And with the rotating spine features, they cover the entire disc of a film on a single page. So there is a lot available now. And because the search is not specific to titles or to directors or cast, you can search for anything on the website. It is easier to search for things, but it is incredibly overwhelming still. I do like the fact that you can bookmark individual supplements. It is frustrating that the commentaries are separate videos, that you're not actually able to turn on and off a commentary as an alternate audio track on a film, but I'm still very pleased to have them available. And actually, I've been listening to the Tokyo Story commentary in my car the past couple days by downloading it directly to my phone, so it's not a video streaming, and I just try to avert my eyes from the screen (laughs) as the dulcet tones of David Desser come over my car speakers. Have you found a good way to find supplements or is it really go to the page? Is it still the best way to find content on the channel? I find that I use the search function to look for supplements more than anything else. If you search, for example, for Tokyo Story, all of the supplements for Tokyo Story will come up in the videos section of search along with the overall movie collection in the collection section at the top. You are able to get a good sense of what's available just by the search function without having to go to each individual page. For example, there's other ways to look for kind of regular contributors. Like if you search for Koganada, you can Mm. see all of the videos that he has contributed to across Criterion's titles that are available to stream on the channel. Any of the great scholars or even actors who have appeared in multiple Criterion films, if you search for their names, all the things that are available for them will pop up in the search function. So it's a nice way to kind of look for these supplements if you don't have a particular title in mind, but you might have some talent or some specific type of supplement that you are curious about, like commentaries. The search function is the best way to go. That's really interesting. That's a good tip. I hadn't thought about using the names of the contributors because we do get a lot of really great commentaries from scholars and from critics that are pretty regular. And, you know, I know that David Bordwell, his commentaries are pretty fantastic. And I know that I'm always going to enjoy those commentaries. That's a good approach to taking that. Yeah, for for example, I just pulled up Donald Ritchie on the search function, and I can tell you that there are five commentaries available from Donald Ritchie on the service, and there are, you know, a number of other interviews with him as well. So it is a good way to get around, and especially because even though they have these particular supplements and sort of video series that I'm sure we'll talk about and get to available for sort of browsing on the front page, things like the filmmakers and things like that there is no way to sort of 
browse for supplements that is yeah. available. So this is kind of the only way to get around. I think along with the fact that it would be great to be able to browse supplements and also to be able to separate mini featurettes and supplements from feature films in your list, it would be really nice if there was a way to show supplements at the end of a movie that did not involve them minimizing the screen, like yeah. a terrible Netflix habit. For example, if you bring up the controls at the end of a movie as the credits are rolling, other videos that are available from that package would pop up. Things like that, I think, would be a great way to get people pushed further down the screen to be able to be aware that these things are even available. Because I think for a lot of people, it's not even something that they will notice, especially if you're using the desktop approach, because the supplements don't show up on the screen unless you scroll down. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the other digital supplements that are being created and something that kind of has been blowing me away. And I think, you know, they were doing it a little bit with Filmstruck and they seem to be going all in now with the channel are all of the digital supplements that they're creating and curating specifically for the channel. And that includes the programs that they started doing with Filmstruck, like Meet the Filmmakers or Adventures in Movie Going or House America, but it also includes, you know, the types of things that you will see on just a normal Criterion disc. I'm working my way through a little bit of the John Schlesinger set right now that's set to expire at the end of the month, and there's an interview with a scholar on that. And it's not something that's on any disc because they don't have the rights to the Schlesinger films, but it's its own little supplement that they created specifically for the channel. What is some of your sense of the types of things that they're creating there? How do you navigate that? Do you put those things in a queue? What are your tactics for tackling the supplements there? Or is it stuff that you just kind of view as bonus content and you kind of tackle if there's an interview that looks interesting or a filmmaker that you want to dive more deeply into? Yeah, I love that stuff. The fact that they're doing things like interviewing Kalika Law for the bundle of his films that they put up last month. And the fact that they're putting those at the front of the bundle queue, the intro to the Betty Davis bundle and the Barbara Stanwyck bundle were both very informative. And so I think that the fact that they're kind of pushing that on people in order to kind of set them up for the context of what they're presenting is essential to what they're trying to do with the channel, which is go a step further into their kind of film school in the box concept to really push the curation idea that this is a story that they're telling with each one of these features. Mm. So I do encourage people to watch those, even if you only cherry pick one or two films from each bundle, you get a lot out of it. It's something that is not available anywhere else, like you said. I think the stuff that I'm most excited about, I kind of dip into the regular features as needed. If it's somebody I find interesting on adventures in movie going or mm -hmm. observations on film art series, if it's a film that I really love or that I've seen, I'll watch that. But I really like the one-off stuff. And maybe it's because one of the biggest ones is a Ozu feature that they did, which premiered on Filmstruck briefly before it ended, but is still available. It's about a 40-minute featurette. 
the We're a Sethical feature from Meet the Filmmakers that's about an hour. Those things are things that you're probably not going to ever see on disc, but are very interesting presentations of information that I wasn't aware of prior to watching them, despite reading a number of books on Ozu, pretty much everything I can get in the English language. And it's great to be able to have those things available. It was almost impossible to find those things on Filmstruck. You had to know exactly where to look to be able to find them. And so the fact that they are searchable now is really great. I do wish that they would push those kind of feature bonus exclusive to the Criterion channel things a little bit more on their front page. But I'm really glad to be able to have them and to be able to find them easily if I know that I'm looking for them. Yeah, yeah. And I do like that those special features like the observations on film art or the adventures in movie going, they have their own lane on the front page that you can go down and you can scroll through all of the different adventures in movie going that have been released at all. I do recommend, especially on those or anything in which you have someone kind of giving an introduction to a film. If it's something that you really want to hear somebody talking about, if it's limited content, don't sleep on that content because as soon as those films get pulled, that interview, that introduction gets pulled as well. That's something I wish that they would leave up. I wish they would leave up all of that exclusive content, even though it's not tied to films that are on the channel anymore. I wish that they would still leave that stuff up there. Yeah, I agree. I think also I would recommend to people if they see the Criterion Channel advertising a title that they've already seen that might have been an out-of-print Criterion title or a Laserdisc title or something like that, Mm. make sure that if it's a movie that you like, you may even own that movie. One of the reasons that Criterion is putting that title up on the page is that they have supplements that are otherwise not available to see. And so you'll get the opportunity to watch a taxi driver commentary or see an interview that might not be available anywhere else. And those things will also go away when the title ends its limited engagement run. So don't just dismiss a listing on the site because it's a movie that you know and love. You might want to root around in there and see what they stuck on the bottom of the page. Yeah, that does bring me to a good question. I think that in the rush to get through limited engagements, a lot of times people will overlook the supplements and they will overlook things like the commentaries. When I was working my way through the expiring titles, I think for December, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, they had the archive edition with the commentary. And I thought, do I really want to watch it with the commentary? But I did. And I got so much out of that Laserdisc commentary. What would you say to people who maybe haven't dipped their toes quite as deeply into all of the supplements and into all of the contextual information? Well, first of all, I would say I totally get you. There's always the urge to, when you're finished with a film, put that one away. And the next time you sit down to watch something, you want to watch another movie that's on your list of things that you can't wait to watch. But the second thing I'll say, and this this is especially as somebody who is currently focused on very deep dives into individual directors like Kieślowski, reading all of the books that I can get my hands on watching all of the supplemental content that is available on each one of the discs. 
something like the blind chance disc is something I've had on my shelf for years and only watched the feature. There is incredible value to be gleaned, not just for that movie individually, but I think for a director, a genre, and just movie history in general from these supplements. So there's a reason that they go to these lengths to include these, and it's not just because they think that's what people want to pay for. It's because they genuinely enrich the film and your experience of watching these movies. So if you finish one of these movies and you feel like, oh, I have 20 more minutes, I want to think about that movie for a little bit more, put on one of these interviews and you will not be disappointed. It's a great experience and it's really an invaluable resource that we have to be able to put these movies in context and enjoy them on a higher level. Yeah, yeah. I finally got to watching Rivette's Paris Belongs to Us. And I sat down and watched the film and all of the supplements. And there is something about not just watching a film, but about sitting down with interviews and listening to scholars talking about a film and watching a short film that the director made earlier and really settling into the full package that Criterion curates, whether it's on disc or whether it's on their digital platform and really absorbing the experience. The impulse right now is to just consume, and that effort of slowing down was really lovely and helped me appreciate the film more. It helped me tease out some of the nuances that I might have walked past in my effort to move on to the next thing, and it helped me really reflect on a film that I'm still pondering today we're encouraged with all of the content that we have to just keep plowing through and checking off all the films on our list. And I think you make a good point that these supplements really help us to slow down a little bit as well, to really appreciate the work of art for what it is. I agree. Well put. Can I make one recommendation for a supplement before we oh, sign Oh, please. Off? Please do. So I do highly recommend the Duvivier film Panique, which is available on the service. But it's also available with most, I think, if not all of the supplements. And one of the supplements on that disc, which was from last year, is called The Art of Subtitling. And it's about the history of subtitling foreign films with the president of Rialto Pictures. I highly recommend that supplement for anybody that likes foreign films. And I assume everybody who's listening to this likes <laughs> foreign films. It's a incredibly invaluable overview of a process that's so essential to our enjoyment of world cinema, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So that's just one of the many gems that is available on the service that might not show up in a featured bundle, but is definitely must-watch material. Oh, that's great. I will make sure to also include a link directly to that video in our show notes for people that want to watch that. Yeah. Great. Well, Matt, before we sign off, tell me a little bit about where you are with the Complete Kuzlowski. I know you just released your Double Life of Veronique episode. I did, and we're scheduling our blue episode now. So we will have a guest for all three of the colors, and then we'll probably do a wrap-up episode and take a little break as we bask in our Kishlovsky completeness. But I hope everybody is enjoying the season, and hopefully we can go out with a bang with his final triptych masterwork. That's awesome. 
where can people find you online? I'm Matthew E.G. on Letterboxd. It's the best place to find me. The show is The Complete Pod on Twitter. You can reach me there as well. Great. Thanks again for joining me, Matt. This is always a pleasure and it's always a delight to get to talk with you about helping people navigate the channel. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Will Rimmers joins me to discuss films about love and loss that are only available on the Criterion Channel's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Criterion Reflections, hosted by David Blakesley. Join David and his guests on their chronological journey through the films of the Criterion Collection. Each episode provides an in-depth discussion into the cultural context for the films discussed and covers Criterion releases on DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, and the Criterion Channel. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with Will Rimmers, frequent guest on Criterion Reflections and director of Utopia Opera Company. And we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. Because the channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's easy to overlook these corners of their library. So here on the podcast, we really try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. It's February, and with Valentine's Day sending movie lovers either seeking the bliss of romantic comedy or the catharsis of romantic tragedy, we thought we'd give you a few recommendations from the Criterion Channel's back catalog with the lovers, stories of love and loss to help you get through the month. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion's streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. So, William, why don't we just dive into the titles? What is the first film that you would like to talk about today? Well, I cheated. I realized I went through and I couldn't find anything that I feel like wasn't an obvious choice from the permanent collection. So I picked expiring titles, which means that this is going to be a very hot topic. We've got to see these quickly. All right. So the first one is Les Amants du Pont Neuf, which is called on the collection Lovers on the Bridge, but that's a mistranslation. So don't think it's just, you know, the bridge. It's a specific bridge. And I yeah. think that's an important detail by Leos Carax from 1991. And this was a bit of a revelation for me, having not seen any of his films before. And I caught it just last night, thinking, you know what? I needed a second option for the Lovers, and Lovers was in the title. And it felt like this <laughs> might be a suitable option. I really enjoyed this. I think actually knowing a bit of the director's reputation, I expected something even more outrageous. But in a way, this was quite simple and direct, a film about two individuals, as a lot of these films will be, and a bridge. And the ability for the lead performers, Juliette Binoche and Denis Levant, to use every part of their being, especially their bodies, and particularly true for Denis Levant, is unlike any love story film I've seen in a very long time. 
I think too that I would not say it's a difficult watch straight through start to finish, but there are some darker elements and some darker imagery here and there. But in a way, it actually felt somehow very pure and distinctly human. So if this interests you at all, I'd recommend seeing it. And if you're not sure, then read the synopsis. I don't think it's actually a kind of film that you can really give much of a synopsis to. So I highly recommend this, and I think that anybody seeing this particular film will find something with which to connect, despite how distinct and individual the protagonists are. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Leo Carax is a filmmaker who I've only seen a few of his films, but in my years at Blockbuster, I remember shelving this film quite a few times, and he's one that I've been really intrigued by. So this is one that I may definitely have to catch before it leaves. That sounds really great. I think it's a quite a popular film, and I'm evidenced for that is that on the Leaving on This Month Criterion channel, Letterboxd lists, ranked by Letterboxd popularity, it's the most popular title expiring that I hadn't seen. I found oh. that quite surprising, considering the fact that in my mind, it's not something that had ever occurred to me, but I have known the film Alfie since I was in you know, middle school. So the fact yeah. that that's so much farther down the list, but I think the Letterboxd user base skews towards newer movies. And for me, this is certainly much newer than most of the films I watch you know, on a weekly basis. So I see why it has that appeal. But the thing about it is that I think that in the hands of a different filmmaker, it may have been cloying or somehow whimsical, but this film really hits its marks successfully, I think. And if there's any contradiction controversy it may engender as i do see that some people might not connect with it here or there i think that it's all because maybe it touched them too deeply who knows mm. this is quite a powerful work and i'm excited to see it again and again because now that i'm a carex fan i'm ready to dive in deeper that's great that's great it's always fun when you discover a filmmaker that you connect with and kind of sends you off on that discovery of earlier works and you start to just gobble up everything that they've ever directed right Absolutely. And this is somebody that, you know, I think I've been sleeping on a bit, too, because I've tended to deprioritize living filmmakers because of strange quirks in my personality. But in a way, I sort of take for granted supporting people that can still make things because I go, well, they'll still be around. I'm more likely to, you know, dive into things that are sort of complete or yeah. full circle, meaning dead. So, yeah, yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah. Well, my first film is Matthew Kosovitz's 1993 film Café Olé. Matthew Kosovitz is probably best known to audiences as the love interest in Amelie, and better known to Criterion audiences as the director of La Haine. Café Olé was his first film. It's an obvious ode to the films of Spike Lee, especially She's Gotta Have It, and maybe to a lesser extent, Do the Right Thing. Here, Kasovitz is interested in exploring race, class, and religion in this love triangle. Lola, who is a young Christian woman of Caribbean descent, she's pregnant and she doesn't know who the father is. Is it Felix, the poor Jewish bicycle messenger, or Jamal, the wealthy Muslim son of an African diplomat? This sets up a conflict between the two men as they posture and they try to prove which is going to be the better father. Kasovitz throughout the film tries to undercut anything that becomes overly ponderous or preachy with some delightful humor at times. Felix is never able to get a handle on the pedal locks of his bicycle and he's forever falling off or crashing into things. There's a great moment where Lola's grandmother extorts the two men for chores when Lola takes a break from their one-upsmanship and they try to find out where she is. 
there's a really fun, bustling energy throughout the film. It does settle for easy answers by the end. You can't help but compare it to Spike Lee. And, you know, I love Spike Lee. I think Spike Lee is a master filmmaker. And I don't think Kasowitz is quite up to the task. But, you know, I cannot fault Kasowitz for wanting to address and explore France's xenophobia at the time, especially looking back on this more than 25 years later, as we see the way that xenophobia has swept so much of Western Europe and the United States as well. It's a solid film. It's slight. It's fun. I think it's worth the 90 minutes if you're looking for something that's kind of a pleasant little diversion. This is not something that you're going to find incredibly deep, meaningful. It's not going to be a life-changing film. But this is one of those 90s independent films that really wants to say something. And while it may not always be successful, I do think that Kasowitz is a fun filmmaker in this case. It's charming. Nothing more, nothing less. It's exactly what you want from a light romantic comedy. It sounds like a big change of pace from what people might expect from him based on Latin as well, yeah. in terms of tone. This is a film that hadn't been on my radar at all and definitely fits the criteria of this section of the program because I didn't even know this was on the channel. When you first mentioned it, I thought maybe it had been a supplement, but it hadn't. I don't know if this has been on disc anywhere, but this is something that I'd like to see. Yeah, like I said, this is not a masterpiece by any means, but I love that it does kind of evoke Spike Lee. And then I love the fact that they actually call out the fact that evokes Spike Lee at one point when Jamal confronts Felix. Felix is actually played by Matthew Kosovitz himself. He dresses like the Spike Lee character from She's Gotta Have It with the same glasses and everything. And Jamal says to him, you're not in a Spike Lee movie. And there's some really fun kind of metafictional stuff there. It's charming. I won't give it more than that. It's not deeply profound, but there is a really lovely moment at the end, and he tries to rope it into what was going on at the time, and it feels really current. Again, a lot of the xenophobia and a lot of the racism that just is not dying down right now, it feels a little too prescient. William, let's talk a little bit about your second film. I am excited to hear about this one as well. Well, it's another expiring title, and I will say that if this hadn't fit this category so appropriately, it would have been the only thing I recommended that was expiring. I think I probably have a very particular interest in cinema of the UK, and yeah. so for that purpose alone, maybe Sparrows Can't Sing, 1963 film by Joan Littlewood is maybe more up my alley than it might be for other folks. But this was based on a Stephen Lewis play, Sparrows Can't Sing, is a film, I think, in terms of um, synopsis, I can actually say this pretty clearly without giving anything away. It's a film about uh, East End of London and a man who comes home after several years at sea looking for his wife. And mm. you have in this a film about community and various sorts of people who know each other in a little village environment in what, even though it's 1963, still feels like a bombed-out, war-torn London, as if this mm. particular subset of the lower classes can't quite make it over the reindustrialization hump. Things I can laud this film for, I mean, this film received top marks from me for reasons that I think are a little personal, but the biggest thing is that it has Murray Melvin and Roy Kinnear in it. And I guess most folks probably know both of these actors, even if they don't know them by name. Murray Melvin also appears in Alfie, which is expiring this month and has a great role as the Reverend Runt and Barry Lyndon appears in The Devils and a number of other films, Taste of Honey. 
And Roy Kinnear, we probably all know from Help and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and many, many Richard Lester films on top Mm. of that. Always, these two actors, if they're in a film, they might be the clinching factor for me. I feel like this is really a terrific work of art, and they show up. Now that film is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So to have both of them in this movie, quite young, younger than I've seen either of them before, in very fun support parts in this film. This is a film where I think you have a cast of a dozen or so characters that you will remember who are all very distinct and very human and who moved me and made me laugh very greatly. I think it's one of the funniest movies I've seen in a while. Joan Littlewood has this as her sole directing credit. She was a stage director who directed the original production of the show. This originally was sort of double-billed on the channel with Oh, What a Lovely War, which Mm. also received top marks from me because Joan Littlewood was also key in the origination of that stage project, which also featured Murray Melvin. You get an idea that these people all know each other and work with each other very well. The lead roles are taken by James Booth and Barbara Windsor. Barbara Windsor, who's very well known from her appearances as sort of the daft blonde in a number of carry-on films, but here gives a BAFTA-nominated performance that is incredibly nuanced and subtle and detailed. This is a film that has love for every character in it. None of the answers are simple. None of the answers are clear. There are gags. There's goofiness. There's so much packed into this 94 minutes. And I think I was smiling and cheering the whole way through for every Mm -hmm. single one of these people. You have Queenie Watts singing a song during a bar brawl, which happens in Alfie. So another strange connection between the same (laughs) exact scenario with the same actress and singer. Victor Spinetti, who has the world's greatest sweater in A Hard Day's Night, appears as the son of a Jewish baker woman. And I mean, I don't know. To me, that's the best movie ever just on that alone. This is a bit of a strange film for me. It has only 131 views on Letterboxd. None of my friends seem to have reviewed it very highly, which makes me feel like I'm somehow on the other side of something. But maybe folks are expecting the wrong thing from it. So I don't know Mm -hmm. what the right thing to expect is. Maybe the right thing to expect is life, is humanity. And there's a certain art house street cred to this film in just the way that I feel like it was using such an intelligent type of direction. Joan Littlewood was so terrific with the actors in this. And the use of London locations is brilliant. I mean, there are moments of this that feel like they're out of Italian neorealism and specific scenes in, say, a Fellini film of the 50s where you're seeing bombed out Italy. It's amazing seeing London feel like that Hmm. and feeling the energy of like an early Truffaut film and sort of the pace of it. I don't think there's anything like it. And it's a very unique point in time because I think we'd all sort of agree that the 60s really only begins after the Kennedy assassination and then in 1964 when the Beatles really hit America. For some reason, it feels like though there would be Beatles in the time of Sparrows Can't Sing, that they're not the Beatles in the same Mm. way, even in the UK where they were already stars. But considering how long the project had been in preparation. I think it captures the UK at a very interesting point in time, right before the 50s finally ended. And I think it's worth everything in the world. From what I understand, it's available on Blu-ray in the UK. So it seems like a very worthwhile checkout. And apropos of the theme, the relationship between our husband and our wife, which is sort of the driving force of the film, is compelling and complex and definitely is bound to provoke a reaction from the audience, which I think is always tremendous, even if the reaction can sometimes be discomfort and then right away after that be joy and elation. So there's a lot in this, and I feel like this is a film many people are just going to skip over, and I hope they don't. 
Oh, that sounds really fascinating. And I did not realize that she was also involved in Oh, What a Lovely War, which was one of my favorite discoveries that month that it expired. Oh, gosh, wasn't it ever. I was blown away by that film. It absolutely stunned me. It hits my cinematic sweet spot, again, of that combination of that high theatricality and cinema blending together. I didn't realize that she originated the stage production of it. And yeah, I mean, that film completely ruined 1917 for me. Oh, well, it completely ruins the idea of anyone wanting to have a war, which is important to do, I think. Exactly. And I would recommend to anybody pick up the original play script, which I got through my local library, which has pictures of the original production of Oh, What a Lovely War. And I'm sure there's something similar of Sparrows Can't Sing. Yeah, Joan Littlewood had an incredible career, but very little of it is sort of documented on film. So almost for that reason alone, Sparrows Can't Sing, I think, gains considerable place. Yeah, this has moved to the top of my viewing list after this. No, I hope it doesn't disappoint everybody now. I don't know. I'm worried that everybody's not going to be on board. But at the end of the day, I think this ends up being a very fun movie. And one that, as I watched it, I felt encouraged to laugh more and more as it went. And then in a way that, you know, some films sort of blend comedy and tragedy in a way that feels too much like the filmmakers are trying to pull the rug out from under you and make you feel bad for laughing earlier. Mm -hmm. This is a film that I think just blends everything together in a very casual way that is so uncinematic in our traditional sense of like a Hollywood cinema. Very impressed. Yeah, that's great. Well, my second film to recommend is one that I discovered during my Filmstruck binge as they were getting ready to shut the service down. And that is The Passionate Friends, directed by David Lean from 1949. It is based on a novel by H.G. Wells, and it follows the romance between a married woman and her former lover after they have a chance encounter at a New Year's Eve party. We learn over the course of the film that she refused to marry him years earlier and settled for a marriage to a wealthy banker who provided security and gave her freedom. But she never stopped loving this former lover, and he never stopped loving her. The story is told through a series of flashbacks nine years after the affair has ended and the woman is meeting her husband on holiday. The structure of the film itself is infused with this deep sense of longing and this ache of desire. The performances here are all just terrific, from Anne Todd, who plays the married woman, to Trevor Howard, who is her lover. They are so good at each stage of the relationship in the past, in the present, in the future. But I have to say that the real standout of the film is Claude Rains, who plays the husband who has been cheated on. He is hardened. He's embittered. He takes this role that could be a stereotype and imbues it with so much pain, so much empathy, so much life, and gets you to care for this man in a way that most films of the time didn't. And it's really surprising and really lovely. I don't want to give away too many of the film's narrative twists and turns, though I feel like it's hard to spoil a film like this. It's so emotionally moving and so powerful. It's one that I can't recommend highly enough. I know that this is one that Paul Thomas Anderson is a big fan of. I remember before it made its way to the Criterion Channel's permanent collection that it was really difficult to see. And this is one that he used as an inspiration for Phantom Thread. 
this is one that as I was rewatching it this week, I was completely stunned all over again. I don't think this film makes any wrong moves. It is as beautiful as Brief Encounter, which I think is just an absolutely stunning film as well from David Lean. And it takes the bittersweet melancholy of that film and expands it and transforms it into something that is even more moving and more devastating at times, but ultimately just so life-affirming and love-affirming and beautiful by the end. I was surprised by how swept up I was again, even knowing everything that was coming. I love this film too. I caught it the same time you did. It must have been the same month. I'd been going through Lean's filmography chronologically, and I remember a time when these were all first-time watches. Somehow I had missed you know, the big epics. I had never seen them, and I got the Criterion set of his early Noel Coward films. And so the first four films of his I ever saw were the first four films he ever did. So getting to this, there's a period between Oliver Twist and Hobson's Choice where he has three films starring Anne Todd, and they're a bit hard to come by. And when these were on Filmstruck, specifically Passion Friends, Madeline, Sound Barrier, this era of David Lean's filmography is a little underappreciated, I think. And Passionate Friends, I think, is the best of those three. Obvious comparison point, like you said, for Brief Encounter, which, I mean, I think probably should be on everybody's The Lovers list anyway. Yes, I think we can dig a little deeper, and I'm so glad you picked this because it's a film that I hope more people can see. I mean, certainly the thing you highlight, Claude Rains' performance, is really the thing that differentiates it from the type of dynamic you experience in Brief Encounter anyway. But it truly is a film that I hope will stand on its own the more we can get people to see it. And I wholeheartedly echo your recommendation for this as a truly special film. Yeah. It's one that I hadn't heard about until I had heard it recommended on, I think it may have been the Film Comment podcast, where they were talking about influences for Phantom Thread. And it was one that hadn't even been on my radar. This one just blew me away in a way that I was not expecting. I still remember a brief encounter being something of a revelation when I saw it because I had come to his films in reverse order and had come to his films after watching all of the big epics and getting to see those quiet films after the big epics was just such a surprise to see someone who is so in command of those quiet moments when you're used to them doing Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai and all of these kind of bombastic things. It was really special. Absolutely. I had the opposite experience, of course, because I started that set when it came out on Blu-ray. So now we're talking maybe eight years ago or something, right? And I only just saw Lawrence Arabia last year. So I've been taking my time with this director with only his last three big features to go. Passionate Friends, yeah. I think that maybe I have seen some reviews of people online that say like it's a less good brief encounter. But I think that also sort of discredits how different this sort of setting is. It's a film about people of a much different class than Brief Encounter, which is obviously important in any film from the UK at this time. And also, I think that it gives a chance for people to see Anne Todd, who is sort of an underrepresented actress as well. Really terrific. Yeah. Well, that is four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Les Amants de Pont Neuf by Leo Carax. Café au lait by Matthew Kosovitz. Sparrows Can't Sing by Joan Littlewood and The Passionate Friends by David Lean. Will, thank you again so much for joining me today. Where can people find you online? Best place is Letterboxd, where you can find me at Will Remmers, W-I-L-L-R-E-M-M-E-R-S. 
I write about everything I see there and you can follow me there. There's also a Twitter link, but I don't really understand Twitter. So maybe <laughs> don't tweet me or anything. But if you need to message me on Facebook, you can find me. My name is what my name is. So you'll see me there. Awesome. Thanks. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is now a proud member of CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality, theatrical, and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash joshhornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks again to all of our current Patreon supporters. Your support really does mean so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, Will and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss films about love and loss that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.